reading and preaching for you today out of John chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, and then chapter 6, 53 through 69. Hear now the word of God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of the blood, blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he whom I said, he, comes after, he who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now if you would, over to chapter 6, starting from verse 53. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, And I in him, as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of the disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who could listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who were to believe and not believe, and who it was that was going to betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. 
After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of God. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. We thank you for this light in the midst of darkness. And we thank you that you feed us with true food and true drink for a true life now and eternal. Help us, Father, to believe these words that we might, too, continue to be able to say with true proclamation that we are the children of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Today we come to the fifth and final sermon of an Advent Christmas sermon series pointing out that Jesus, the Son of God, came in the flesh to fulfill the law of God. That according to Jesus in his word, the great anticipation of Jesus' arrival was that Jesus came to fulfill, Jesus came to enable, and Jesus came to save. So far, we have already seen how the gift of Jesus Christ to the people of God is embodied in his fulfillment of eight of the Ten Commandments. One, he fulfills the first commandment, first of all, by being God in the flesh. Without Jesus, we cannot have God. Two, he fulfills the second commandment by being the expressed image of God in the flesh, submitting to the worship of the Father according to the will of the Father. Three, Jesus has the very name of God as Son of God, and he has the authority to grant that name for those his Father has given him. Fourth, Jesus has been given the earned name Lord of Sabbath with the authority to give rest and mercy to mankind. His work in rest saves us, and only our access to that hope and salvation can be done if we rest in him. Five, Jesus is the son of promise. The heavenly father responds to Christ's submission by declaring that he is well pleased with Jesus. And therefore, those who are in Christ, covered by his blood and his name, the father is also well pleased with us. Six, he poured out his soul at the hand of murderers to be numbered with the murderers. He has the authority to both give and take up his life, and by his life, our lives will be raised with his. Seven, Jesus betrothed himself to the unfaithful wife, so that the wife may be washed and purified by his word. And by his steadfast love, the splendor of the groom becomes the splendor of the bride. Eight, the promised Messiah restores purpose and faith fruitfulness to his bride and makes the shame of her theft of false devotion into a door and promise of hope. And he seats her at his table. In conclusion to this series here on Christmas Day, we will look at how Jesus fulfills the ninth and tenth commandment. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. 
You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything, anything that is your neighbor's. At least three of my family's favorite uh, classic Christmas movies center on the dilemma of the covetous condition of mankind and the exposure that striving for self brings contentment, or excuse me, exposure of the lie that striving for self brings contentment of life. In fact, most Christmas movies, most good Christmas movies highlight these sins. It is typical for movies of these sorts to focus on materialism and the endeavor to discover the real meaning of Christmas. You take a moment now and think about what is your favorite Christmas movies, and usually those are the things that are highlighted in most good Christmas movies. I mean, there's other debates about whether Die Hard is a Christmas movie or not, and I don't know. I haven't seen that in such a long time. I don't even know if it deals with any of those. I'm, got to figure out a way to watch that sometime on VidAngel or something. I'm sure I can't watch it anymore. It's pretty rough from what I recall. But I want to point out three particular movies that are favorites in our families, and I want you to look at these particular themes that are there, and it's very obvious in these particular movies. It's a wonderful life. In the trek to find grandiose personal fulfillment and success, George Bailey becomes increasingly embittered at each thwarting of his big plans by his familial and community responsibility. He is continually torn between ambition and his compassion as he sees others seemingly enjoy the fruits of success that he longs for. Fear of failure and shame eventually overtake him to the very point of facing death. But in his case, absence made the heart grow grateful with thanksgiving. And he was divinely granted an appetite to live in contentment by seeing the fullness of his immense blessings. His grandiose plans and his fear did not match up to the reality of his blessed life that was filled with the fruit of self-sacrifice. In the end, mercy begat mercy. A Muppet's Christmas Carol. Marley was dead to begin with, is the first line of that classic book. Like It's a Wonderful Life, Dickens also opts opts to begin with death to provide no misconceptions concerning the result of the life lived, grasping for the security of revenue at the expense of the well-being of neighbor. Bitterness from broken expectations deceives Scrooge into thinking that a harsh day's work and a restful night is better than the wealth is better welfare for mankind than the celebration of its salvation with Christmas. But the mercy of truth awakens Scrooge to the reality that wealth with emptiness is ultimately death. Truth delivered grace for Ebenezer. And then an increasingly favorite of mine. A Charlie Brown Christmas. It's only a half an hour long, but it quickly brings the audience into slapstick depression with ironically realistic display of the immersion into self. We were watching that just the other day, and it, it really, it, it, my, it, 
anxiety increases <laughs> in the first few minutes of it. Even the advent of Christmas could not make Charlie Brown happy. Charlie knows the truth that commercialism is covetousness ran amok. Even his dog, he says, is consumed with commercialism. But the knowledge of cultural sin does not bring happiness. Just knowing what is bad is not enough to bring salvation, but only greater depression. He is told that psychiatry, busyness, and community will bring him salvation. But we see that all of that is a lie. Psychiatry becomes just an avalanche of labels. Busyness is only a distraction. And unfortunately, community unredeemed is an oppressive magnification of all of our weaknesses. Finally, in a moment of despair, Charlie Brown cries out for someone to proclaim the truth about Christmas. And then the unlikely preacher lets go of his insecurity just long enough to proclaim from God's word a passage that we read even this morning that it is about the glory of the coming of the Savior. Hearts are softened at this proclamation. And the assembly there with Charlie Brown also joins the citizens of Bedford Falls in singing the same song we've already sung this morning, praises to the newborn king that God and sinners are reconciled. It seems each Christmas season brings an unexpected grace by being a constant reminder that our covetous hearts still believe the lie that abundance in temporal achievements bring true happiness. It's a struggle every Christmas for me. It seems whether it's plans, you know, this morning we had a few sick and it, it thwarted my idea of having my whole family with me on Christmas morning worshiping the Lord. And it just completely just shows how tied we are to our own expectations continually. It's ironic that watching people one day after Thanksgiving fight each other for Black Friday plastic could actually be a greater mercy for us than the perfectly cooked roast beast. Seeing those people sometimes year after year looking for some kind of happiness out of something that's nothing makes us realize what kind of condition we're in, and that's actually a mercy and a grace. Why? Well, because the truth hurts. It even kills. Truth has to bring death to death so that truth can bring life to life. I work for an IT company that has about 100,000 employees throughout the whole country or excuse me, out throughout the whole world. And every time when my computer starts to glitch and act up, I go to my main particular IT guy, my local self-help guy, that, I mean, computer help guy, that IT help guy that's in my office, and I go to him. And you all can probably guess this. 90% of the time, you know what he tells me to do? Start over. <laughs> Turn off the computer, do a reboot, restart. That's his primary answer to almost all of my problems, to start back at the beginning. Here we are, the last two commandments of this series, two commandments that highlight arguably the root summary of most sins, lies and coveting. And I think it would be good for us to do a reboot. 
after plowing through the sludge and confusion that destruction of sin has done to our souls, let us look back to the beginning for our restoration. The gospel, according to John, truly does a complete restart by taking us truly to the beginning of it all. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This one verse explosively defines so much about our theology of Jesus Christ. He was at the beginning before all creation. He was with the Father. And he, Jesus Christ, is God. But one of the most unique elements of this theological description is that he is referred to as the Word. Logos. It is by the word, by Jesus Christ, that all things were made. Nothing was made without the word. And in this word is life and light. This word is logos in the Greek. Now this word, the Greek word logos, is nearly impossible to interpret fully and accurately in English because of its deep and broad meaning. And I'm not going to attempt to do that. We could have a whole sermon series just on understanding what it means to be the word, to be logos. In Greek philosophy, logos is an impersonal and an abstract force embodying all reason and logic, and it keeps all things in order. It's kind of, I guess, kind of like in Star Wars, it's the force. But it's, it's an impersonal force. It's, a, it's somewhat of a mystery, but they have an understanding that this, the essence of all understanding and truth is embodied in Logos. And so John is working with that, but for the Jews, Logos is similar, but it is personal. Logos is actually he. Logos means more than, than just our general understanding of truth. It's not just truth, but it's no less than truth. Logos is life and light. Logos is Jesus. And that's about as deep as I can go there. But this truth that is Jesus, Jesus is the epitome and fullness of all truth, shines in the darkness. The darkness of lies. The darkness of deception and confusion and sin. All kinds of darkness and sin in our lives. But it is definitely the lies, the sins of lies and coveting. I want to, if you have your Bibles with you, to turn to to chapter 2 of Micah. I want to briefly, just briefly, don't freak out too much with me here, to draw your attention to the book of Micah to describe some of the darkness of coveting and lies. Because Micah 2, in my opinion, is another Advent passage of the coming of Jesus Christ. In verse 1 of Micah chapter 2, it says, Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. Here we have Micah given the condition of mankind as being those who covet so much that as they rest in the bed, that they're making plans about their own lives and their own ambition that is actually taking away from other people. 
When we think about the depths of what covetousness is, often we are so consumed with ourselves, we're thinking that it's the sin of our own personal greed, that it's actually just the, 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 the greed of materialism. But what we have here is that it's actually taking something from someone else. If you look at the commandment about covetousness, it talks about not to covet thy neighbor's possessions. And it's interesting that both the ninth and 10th commandment are the only one that specifically mentions neighbors. It's taking a lot of what we're thinking about and putting it toward the second part of the summary of the law that it has to do with our love of neighbor. Let us continue on. In verse 3 it says, Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family I am devising disaster from which you cannot remove from your necks, and you shall not walk haughtily, and it will be a time of disaster. In that day they shall take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly and say, We are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removes it from me. To an apostate he allots our fields. Therefore, you will have none to cast the line by the lot in the assembly of the Lord. Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. But then Micah responds, should this be said, O house of Jacob, has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? But lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses. From their young children you take away my splendor forever. Arise and go, for this is no place to rest, because of uncleanliness that destroys with grievous destruction. If a man should go about in utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be a preacher for this people. Now, there's a lot of words there, but basically you have these people who are so consumed with themselves that they cannot even give themselves rest at night other than to be coveting plans of how they can consume things for more of themselves. And if you really think about it, all coveting has to do with using other people. A lot of times we don't just covet things, but we covet relationships we covet the people and the connection with relationships because it actually fulfills our own personal selfish desires. We use people all the time. Here we see that Jesus, excuse me, God in general despises this kind of usury against people. To be thinking of everything that's around them as if it is for themselves. And then he says that people don't want to hear this kind of preaching against their hearts. People will say, do not preach. That this is too much of a disgrace. We cannot have this overtake us. And then Micah tells them, the kind of preacher that you want is one that will utter wind and lies, that will preach to you of wine and strong drink, because ultimately you are drunk with yourself. And you want preachers to continue to give you lies that only build up. The self-proclamation. Now, I believe in the church today that there are plenty of preachers, and we know that there's the extreme kind of people that are preaching wealth to people, that if you do this or that, that God would provide you some kind of wealth. 
But I would say that even broadly that we have so much preaching today that is ultimately for the purposes of reassuring people not that Jesus has saved them from their sins, but that you're all right and that you're good and that you are generally so good that the Lord couldn't do anything but give you grace. This is the kind of lies that people have believed, not only in the pulpit, but also in every element of their lives. We are those who are attracted by lies because it reinforces and encourages us to do the things that our sinful hearts want to do. But look at what Micah says. That here is this very dark and stark condition of mankind that are so full of themselves that we want the chorus of lies to actually drunken, make us drunk with ourselves, Micah promises something great in verse 12 by quoting God saying, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like a sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. It speaks of one who will break through this breach, that he will gather together the remnant of Israel and break through this darkness with the light of this king. God sent Micah to bear a true witness before a people in the darkness of lies and coveting. And at the arrival of the king here in the Gospel of John, once again, God has provided a prophet to prepare the way by bearing witness about the light. Verse 6 of John 1, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The ninth commandment is to not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Here in the proclamation of the gospel, in the culmination of the advent of Jesus Christ, God provides us one who is going to bear us true witness of the true word. In verse 9, it says, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Here we have... John, being like Micah, proclaiming ultimately that the truth, the one who is going to bear the fullness of all truth, which is basically Jesus bearing a true witness of himself, which is the express image of the Father, which is the epitome of all truth, Jesus fulfills the ninth commandment by coming in the flesh as the word as the embodiment of actual truth. There's no greater way to fulfill the ninth commandment than to being bear, bearing self yourself as witness of yourself when you are the ultimate of all truth. Does that make sense what I'm saying? It's the height of all truth. And he has come to bear it before us. 
Whereas whenever we believe lives and live lives and proclaim lives either in our word or the testimony of our lives to other, when we are doing those kind of lies to other people, we are bearing a false witness. If you go to the Westminster Confession of Faith, you will see just how all-encompassing that lies can be. It's not just a matter of if I tell somebody one little fib here or there. It's really believing and living and proclaiming, bearing a witness that is false in any regard. The gospel writer of Luke bears witness of an angel of the Lord bearing witness to John's dad, Zechariah, that's of the Malachi who bore witness that God said to John that he would turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, that he will go before him in the spirit of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and to the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. John's job was by making this proclamation, this bearing of truth, was to prepare people's hearts to be able to receive the truth. We see here that the world would not understand it, that even those of his own people could not receive him. But in verse 12, it says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of the blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. We see that this bearing of witness is a preparation for us. Just as Micah said that, isn't it a mercy for you, for me to make this proclamation to you, for this truth to actually hurt you and to kill and destroy your lives so that you may actually see the truth? It has to penetrate the darkness. When we are caught up in lies and in coveting in whatever way that it is in our lives, the only way to break through that is to have the truth, the reality exposed to us. We must have a light. But we can't just process it like where the Greeks are saying that logos is something that we can just reason and figure out, that we can't even attain this truth in of ourselves because we are in such great darkness. But because of the proclamation of the actual word, which is the accomplishment of Jesus Christ, hearts can be turned. John the Baptist was very clear that he was not the light, but that he was just there to bear witness of it. And we see that by the will of the Father, we are able to actually see and know truth. The incarnation of Jesus Christ The Son of God, coming as man, brought forth a power beyond just contemplation and consideration. A power beyond normal reasoning. He came as truth, and it did something. The incarnation of Jesus Christ, the the birth and life of Jesus Christ, did something that shattered that darkness. The thing that we are celebrating today is that embodiment of truth. It's effective for our salvation. The truth actually transforms us. 
And it also enables us and equips us to be those who could live lives of truth, to actually live lives of life. Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 9 through 10, when he's talking about the simple commandment not to lie to each other, he says, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. See what Paul is saying there? is that we are no longer to be those who are living lives of lies because we have a new life in Christ, and it is a life that's being renewed, so it's still at work. That word renewed is such a gracious word for us because we may look and say, well, every Christmas I see how I'm just so caught up in myself, or every day of my life I can see how caught up I am in myself. But for those who are in him, we are being renewed by the continual knowledge of the truth of Jesus Christ. It's a process that our knowledge, not just our striving at figuring out Jesus, but that grace of the knowledge of Christ is actually renewing us. The Apostle John also describes Jesus as the one that is full of grace and truth in verse 14. And then, and again, in verse 17, we see... I was on the wrong page, sorry. In verse 17, it says, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, it's interesting to, to, to chew on what that meant, that grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And first of all, I want to say that this is not a contrasting situation where we say, well, the law was given to Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. It's actually all in one statement. It's saying that when Moses was delivering the law, something happened there that pointed toward grace and truth. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the grace and truth that was given at the proclamation of the law. A lot of times in our mind, we want to contrast. We want to say, well, the bad thing was given to us by Moses, and the good thing was given to us by Jesus. No, what, it, what, Paul, what um, John is actually saying is that Jesus was the fulfillment of the law that was given by Moses. If you turn to your Bibles to Exodus chapter 33, I'll show you that that's the case. In Exodus 33, verse 18, Moses asked God, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. Now, this was after multiple levels of salvation. Jesus, God, God had already delivered Israel out of Egypt. So he had already given them salvation from their captors. And after that, they got involved in false worship. They were coveting other things. And even in here, they're grumbling and coveting things. And Moses is talking to God that even though after he came down and broke the the first tablets that were given, God has given him a new set of tablets. And Moses has the audacity to say, show me your glory. 
And God says, I will show you my glory and I will proclaim my name to you. And then he makes a point to him that I'm going to be gracious and I'm going to show mercy who I'm going to show mercy. Then in chapter 34, when God does fulfill that promise to Moses that he will pass before him, look at chapter 34, verse 6, to what the Lord says about himself. It says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now, you look in the notes of probably if you have ESV or if you're looking at a KJV, you'll see that the word here is really defined as truth. That he's abounding in steadfast love and truth, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation? This is a perplexing promise that the Lord is saying. So the Lord is going before Moses and he's singing almost a song about himself. And he says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and truth keeping steadfast love for thousands. But then he's also saying that I'm not going to just forget about sin and wrath. What the Lord is doing here is actually proclaiming an Advent promise that there will be one who comes that will be able to fulfill that mercy, that grace, that steadfast love and truth that he is promising in the midst of the declaration of the law That there will be one who will come to fulfill the law. Because he cannot be one who would just willy-nilly clear the guilty. Someone will have to come and fulfill this promise. God bore witness to Moses in the giving of the law for the people of God that they would need him to save them from the transgression of the law. At the same time, while he was giving the law... That he would have to fulfill the law by visiting the iniquity of his people with truth. The law was truth, and he would send them the epitome of truth. The epitome, the fullness of what the law was proclaiming. It was about the coming of Jesus Christ. It all points to Jesus Christ. Just like the manna in chapter 6 of John. We must have God. Jesus fulfills our need of truth, but he also fulfills our need of all sustenance of life. The things that we think we need to covet and strive for and to plan in our mind, Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of that. Go to chapter 6 of John. In verse 55 it says, For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died, Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. 
Here we have Jesus saying that not only was I the, am I the truth and the law, I am the manna. That the manna was always pointing to me. That the ultimate end and purpose of the manna was to show me. And here I am standing before you. I am greater than that manna that was temporal, that was only a shadow and a pointer to what was to come. See, what coveting is, is a contentment in self. We think we know what we need. Jesus is here telling them what they need. He's saying that he is the fulfillment. And immediately they're having a hard time with what he is saying. They're having a hard time that he is true food and true drink. Because they didn't understand ultimately what was going on there when the manna was given. So they're also not seeing it. They're still thinking fleshly. We see in Luke chapter 12, verse 15, he says to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Covetousness is about possessions, but we see that the actual commandment is that it's possessions or time or purposes stolen from neighbor. In verse 19, it says that the fool will say to his soul, Soul, you will have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God has said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. And the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. We see here in Jesus' proclamation that not only are we consumed with taking possessions from other people, but ultimately we are not fulfilled with God. Jesus is proclaiming here in the book of John in chapter 6 that he is that true food, that you can be filled into true life, that all the things that you think you want are actually fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and that we need to have our hearts toward God and to neighbor. In Romans chapter 13, it says to owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, or any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. We can't do that kind of love in of ourselves. So Jesus comes and even is proclaimed in the words of God before Moses that I will come and I will be the one who will provide that steadfast love and faithfulness. That I'm the one who will love not just my neighbor, but the whole of all of the people of God. So when God is teaching Israel this, what do they do? What do we do as we have such immense riches of his word available to us each Sunday podcast on our coffee tables, on our phones? What do we do when we continue to hear day after day that we are covetous people believing in lives? We do the same thing that they did in Israel. They complained. They complained at the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. Things did not work out like we planned. Things didn't come to fulfillment like we hoped. They instead remember Egypt. 
And they remember the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. And it says there's nothing left. There's nothing for us to eat but this stinking manna that came down from out of heaven. That's all you've given us, Lord. We want what was in Egypt, and you give us manna. And as the Lord looks at this, these people weeping as they are being filled and sustained by this manna, And given a proclamation, ultimately, of the gospel, they are weeping. And the anger of the Lord blazed hotly, and Moses was displeased. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus teaches that the good neighbor is the one who shows mercy. And we may look at that and we go, okay, I'm going to be good to people, I'm going to do good to people. No, it's actually supposed to be a leveling parable. We cannot be the good neighbor apart from the ultimate good neighbor showing us mercy. Look what the Lord was doing even to the people of Israel as they whined and complained after the Lord saved them over and over and over again. They complained and he fed them manna. The same is for us. As we complain and complain, the Lord gives us Jesus. He is the good neighbor for us who are laying dead on the street. In Hebrews, we are taught to keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Think about what he's instructing here. When he gives us that, it says, keep your life free from the love of money and covetousness and believing in lies and living your life full of lives because I, Jesus, will never leave you or forsake you. He doesn't just tell you to buck it up. He's telling you that because I am the manna, because I am the truth, because I am the mercy, because I am the good neighbor, you can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. You can Keep your life free of the love of money and be content with Jesus. You can be content with the true manna because he will never forsake us. Will we forsake him? In John chapter 6, verse 66, it says, after this, after Jesus explains this, after Jesus explains that that he is giving life, By being the bread of life, it says, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Here we should have a warning that in our sin and in our darkness, even when Jesus is right smack dab in front of you, The lies about the world is so strong that if Jesus was standing right in front of you, you would want to walk away from him, being consumed in your own self. But look at the answer that was given by Simon Peter. It says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of life eternal, and we have believed. And have come to know 
that you are the Holy One of God. We see here that the Lord, we already have been told, we see Jesus even talking about it, that only those who are called can come to him. We see that Simon Peter and the other disciples here, except the one, have been given the grace of the knowledge of the truth, that the bearing of the true witness penetrated their hearts. So now we can see when John later on wrote in 1 John chapter 2, 22, it says, Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, for he denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Father has, excuse me, denies the Son has the Father. But whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. And then we also see in 1 John chapter 2, 15, Do not love the world or the things in the world. Anyone, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The only way that these commandments can be fulfilled in our lives, lives is if Jesus is in our life, if we are abiding in him and he in us. So to close, I want to read for you also words from the Apostle John that summarizes what has just been said in these two particular portions of two chapters. He says, that which is, this is John, 1 John 1, 1 through 9, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, we have seen with our eyes, which with we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and we testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. Now hear this, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things to you so that our joy may be made complete. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we have deceived ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let us pray.